This is the sermon podcast for Bering Memorial United Methodist Church, a reconciling congregation located deep in the heart of Houston, Texas. For more information, please go to bearingumc.org. So this morning in our greeting, we proclaimed these words. When God speaks, everything is turned inside out. The wise learn the language of grace through children. The strong take lessons from the powerless. For the God we worship works in ways the world least expects. In this moment in our nation and in our church, we are learning the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the world through children. High school students have finally stood up and said, enough is enough. This is insanity. You do not end gun violence by further weaponizing society, by putting guns in the hands of teachers and at schools. We do not need the public to be able to purchase semi-automatic assault rifles to protect ourselves under the Second Amendment. If you clap, you're going to have to act. Because here's the deal. They're not backing down. They're being discounted and even demonized by some of our political and other leaders and by the press. But they are not backing down. They are taking up the cross and standing there. God forgive us that it took a parkland for someone to finally start paying attention. God is going to hold the church in America accountable for exhibiting less moral courage and godly wisdom than these children. We have made God's house a den of thieves to the extent that we have remained silent in this debate and to the extent that our silence and or our support of the NRA has come because we are afraid of the cost. We are afraid that donors will stop giving. We are afraid that members will walk out We are afraid that we will lose our political power and privilege. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is pretty clear. You will have no other gods besides me. Not the God of privilege, not the God of power, not the God of access to power, not the God of wealth, not the God of the ability to control our own lives at the cost of others. Not even the God of the right to have a gun so I can go hunting. 
Now, I don't hunt, and I have family to hunt, and I think hunting's fine. But even that doesn't trump the gospel. Now, I'm going to pull my education card here, because as a Harvard-trained lawyer, it is my opinion that the ability to purchase a semi-automatic assault rifle has nothing to do with protecting our rights under the Second Amendment. But I'm also here to say, as a Christian, that even if it did, our first allegiance is to the nonviolent path of resistance that is exhibited by Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now, I'm on a tear this morning. (laughs) And Jack will tell you when I get on a tear, it's best to kind of get out of the way while I rant and it runs its course. So he packed up and went to California this morning. (laughs) But I'm not here to rant this morning. I'm here to preach the gospel and ask us to stand in it. So would you pray with me and ask God to show up and not the ranting Diane. Let's pray. God, we want to be faithful Christians. We want the moral courage to stand at the foot of the cross and not slink back, not run away. When the pressure gets tough, when people are offended, when the world says we're fools. God, we ask you to speak to us today. We ask that we might hear the gospel, that that gospel by your spirit might sever the worldly understanding that infects the way we think about you and the church and our place in the world. Speak so that we can hear you this morning because lives are at stake. And the witness of your church is at stake. Now take the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. May they be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So I promised you in the video preview that I would talk about the foolishness of God today. So was it a bait and switch? I had not intended to talk about gun violence this morning, but as I worked on this sermon, even into the late hours of the night last night, rewriting it and struggling with it, it kept coming. I said, well, what does that have to do with this whole thing about the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the cross? And actually, it has everything to do with it. We have major challenges facing us as a nation and, frankly, as a church. Gun violence, immigration, poverty, homelessness, access to health care. And frankly, how we're going to treat in the nation and the church the LGBTQ community, which is still being maligned in the media and on our political realm, as well as parts of the church. I didn't know till yesterday that without parental support, 58% of transgender youth commit suicide. 
And yet, there is legislation being proposed that will continue to demonize our transgender brothers and sisters. How we speak into these issues, what we do, where we stand matters. Are we going to stand in the wisdom of the world or are we going to stand in the foolishness of God? Now, I don't ask that lightly because the wisdom of the world says we need more stuff. Seek wealth. And when you get enough, get more. And the fact that some people in the world or even in our own communities don't have enough is not my problem. We need more things. We need more stuff. We need to protect our way of life regardless of what it may cost others. Now, I say that as someone who sits here with a ring like this and a house that you all have seen. I like my stuff. And I'm willing to be liberal and progressive and even prophetic as long as you don't mess with my stuff. That's how much the wisdom of the world has infiltrated our understanding of the gospel. And I include myself in that accusation. The gospel says, you cannot serve two masters, for you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll devote yourself to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. The gospel says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt and thieves can break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your heart treasure is, there your heart is. A rich young man came up to Jesus and asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Keep the commandments. They said, I've kept them all. What else do I need to do? And he looked at him and said, Go sell everything you got and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Okay, now automatically when I say that, I can give you every excuse why that's not really true. I'm not suggesting that we be simplistic about this, but I'm saying if that doesn't rattle us, we are not listening. The world says we need more guns. We need a larger nuclear arsenal. We need to be ready to fight back with violence to return violence for violence. The gospel says don't return evil for evil. As much as it's possible, within your means, live at peace with everyone. The gospel says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart, Toward your brother and sister, if you call them the B word or the SOB word, Raka, then you are subject to the judgment. The gospel says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The gospel says, You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
if we were to listen to that, how might it inform our response to all this business about gun violence? The world says we only got enough room for so many people and enough stuff for so many people, and this is our country. God blessed us and gave it to us, and so we need to send all these people home. It's not our responsibility what's happening in their home country. It's not our responsibility to see that they have a place, and all those refugees that are fleeing horrible circumstances might include a terrorist or two, and so we're not going to let any of them in. A year ago, I went to a Houston area pastor's 24-hour prayer vigil. Included pastors from numerous Christian denominations. And I heard this prayer. God, help us protect our own first. I heard that. Where is that in the gospel? I like it. But that's not the gospel. I can love myself, but I can't do that to the exclusion of my neighbor who's in need. The world says if you're too different, we can persecute you. We can exclude you. We can insist that you be like me. As some of you know, for seven years I was, I don't know, in charge is the word, but one of my responsibilities was helping us reach the Hispanic community in the Texas Annual Conference. They hired a white, Harvard-educated girl to do that. And she was passionate about it and still is. But one of the mistakes we made is thinking that only people who are credentialed like me, who look like me, can we trust with leadership. And today, that ministry is exploding in large part because it's being led by a man anointed by God who is Hispanic and who has a high school education. It's being led by a woman who is Hispanic who is anointed by God and is a DACA holder who may lose her status. We're in one of the biggest debates, to put it kindly, in the United Methodist Church about whether or not the LGBTQ community is too different, whether we have to insist that they be like the rest of us. And the gospel says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus, that all of those categories of distinction that we impose for our own comfort, for our own sense of security, for our own ability kind of control the way things go, and because we don't understand who you are when you are that different because of your religious practices because of your economic or social status because of your gender identity or sexual orientation make no difference in the gospel God told Peter 
Don't you dare call unclean what I have called clean. The world's wisdom says it's all about numbers. If you don't have enough people responding, you're not doing effective ministry. If you don't have enough dollars coming in the door, you're not doing effective ministry. If you don't have enough butts in the pew, not doing effective ministry. Now, those are things we have to look at. Those are things we have to look at. You've got to be able to sustain a ministry. But the gospel says, if there's 99 and there's 20 missing, maybe we'll go. No, the gospel says if there's 99, there's one missing. Leave the 99 and go get them. Are we willing to go get them? Are we willing to go where the gospel calls us to go, to stand where the gospel calls us to stand, whether or not we see the kind of results that we think we need to see? I get it. It's hard. When we started working on DACA, some of you called me and said, look, I called. It's not going to make any difference. If I vote, it's not going to make any difference. There's so much wrong with the whole way we treat the homeless situation. What difference can we possibly make? And then yesterday, I listened to a mom of a transgender child who said it made a difference that one friend stood beside me. Where were the rest of you? We need to love louder. It makes a difference that we stand by the very fact that we stand. It makes a difference that we act by the very fact that we act. It's like throwing that pebble into the lake. There is a ripple. God is at work and calls us to stand and to act no matter what result we get. The result is God's problem. My responsibility is, is, am I willing to stand at the foot of the cross and be a fool for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of people who are literally dying because they have no health care, because they are fleeing countries where they are being persecuted and have no place to go, because they're transgender, they're still being murdered in our community. Am I willing to even take on a theology that supports that view of the world? And am I willing to do it in a way that doesn't vilify those who disagree with me, but invites them to the table? As we go through this conversation as the United Methodist Church, God's not calling us to vilify the other side. God's not calling us to engage in violent hate speech in response to people who disagree with us. God is calling us to stand for the gospel of full inclusion and to invite those who disagree with us to the table, to open the door to possibility that there's room for all of us. That's a different stance than a violent one. 
that says you're not my enemy, you're my brother, you're my sister. It doesn't compromise the stance, but it's a matter of standing for something rather than against people who are just as broken as we are. I want to invite you to consider where it is God is calling us individually and as a community to stand in all of this and to go stand there regardless of whether or not we see the result we want because that's our part. That's hard sometimes. They crucified Jesus. The world's wisdom would say he was a failure. He died an offense, a fool, and yet he's the wisdom of God. March 14th is the anniversary of the martyrdom of Archbishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador. He was a man of privilege, highly educated, in a church that was powerful and wealthy and that participated in the abuse of the poor by the government of El Salvador. It wasn't until Oscar Romero got out of the church and into the communities that he didn't understand and know and build relationships with those communities that he finally saw that Jesus Christ continued to be crucified in the oppressed people in his own country. And he decided to stand at the cross. And on March 14th, 1980, he was offering the Eucharist to his faith community and he was murdered at the altar by one of his own people, by the government. What a wasted life. Or maybe not. There was a poem written for him in his memory, but I would like to close with this because God's wisdom says stand where you're called to stand, work where you're called to work, be in the world that God has called, the way God has called you to be in the world and leave the result to me because I am about something bigger than we can see. And so I offer this poem, a future not our own, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we're about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects 
far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter in and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, yeah, you're a minister too, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. In the name of the creator, redeemer, and sustainer, amen.